Good evening, everybody. I'm excited to get to share this message with you tonight, particularly because we really get to be in the word. And I'm actually a little nervous about that because it's easier for me sometimes to tell a story that you can really connect to. And sometimes I get nervous. And this is a confession, maybe more than anything. Sometimes I get a little nervous that like we're just going to really be in the Bible tonight. Like, will that be engaging enough? Like, oh, you guys, that's gross, (laughs) right? Like, it's God's word that we get to be in tonight. So we're going to do that. We're going to dig in. We're going to be in it. But first, I need to tell you, this is like a litany of confessions this evening. The next confession is that I became a Christian in high school, not entirely to impress a guy, but like a little bit. Right? Like, a little bit. His name was Simon, and he was tall and, like, mysteriously handsome and, you know, mysteriously handsome, yeah, and, like, interesting and thoughtful, and he was quiet and an artist, and this was, like, the height of moody, emo, millennial cool. You know what I'm saying? If you're a millennial, you know what I'm saying? And I was none of those things. I was a short, bouncy, smiley, little, cute thing, and I thought it's meant to be because opposites attract and all, right? It's meant to be. And we had a couple of classes together, and he knew I was a new follower of Jesus, and he talked about God all the time, right? He would walk into homeroom with his Bible, and he would open it up like he knew what he was doing, you know, right? Like, yes, I do know where Philemon is. Yeah. Like, maybe we'll go there sometime together. Like, let's do that. Let's, that sounds great. He might as well have had this flashing, like, date me sign over his head, and he, little 14-year-old baby Christian Carey, like, was hoping for that, right? But he didn't want to date anybody. Like, I, even though like, I was pretty sure that he was interested, right? Pretty sure. But he told me very clearly he wasn't going to date anybody. And I thought that maybe if I was super Christian-y, like, he'd change his mind, right? Like, if I could prove that I was really holy, he might be interested in me. And so I would do holy things, right? Like, I would have these evangelism conversations, and I would read the Bible a lot, and I would pray for long amounts of time, and then I would go tell him about it in homeroom. <laughs> it didn't change his mind. But I learned the Bible, right? So there's one thing. There's one thing. But here's the deal. I was acting like a Christian. Like, I was doing these Christian things so that he would be impressed by me, right? And I wonder if anyone else can relate to that. Like, doing Christian things so that someone or a group of someones will be impressed by you. And if I wonder if anyone else can relate to the fact that that gets really old really fast, right? Like, does anyone else get tired of acting like a Christian sometimes? I, thankfully, in hindsight, ran out of energy to act like a Christian pretty fast in high school. I had a lot going on. I had a lot of emotional depression and anxiety. I had family stuff that was overwhelming. And thankfully, Jesus met me there, and Jesus showed me a different way. I want to show you first what happens when we try too hard to act like Christians, like there's some sort of recipe, right? Like there's some sort of, if we get all of these ingredients right, if we follow the instructions correctly, maybe we'll just like produce, we'll bake a mature Christian. Has anyone ever seen Nailed It? Anyone? I know Megan has, because we were just talking about this on Saturday. This is why she inspired me, y'all. All right, here, you wanna pull up that first slide? Okay. This is a picture of what happens when an amateur baker is given 
a recipe to follow and instructions to follow. It's supposed to look like the one on the right, right? And instead, it like nailed it. Like it looks like the one on the left. We got it totally. We got it, right? Like sometimes following all of the steps and the recipe and the instructions, sometimes that's not enough. And when we, in our Western modern culture, like we like a process, right? We like a method with a beginning and an end and efficient objective results. Like I love the scientific method. I'm a science girl at heart, but I think that it's shifted our understanding of truth right? Like we can strip things down to variables and then we have a process, a method that we follow and that leads us to objective truth. The problem is that following Jesus doesn't work like that, right? Following Jesus is more than the sum of its parts. We can't strip it down to the variables of Bible study and, you know, church attendance and prayer and doing all of the right things, volunteering, not getting you know, too drunk on the weekends. I took my Bible and left it on my desk, like whatever those things are, mixing it all up and hoping it just bakes a mature Christian. These are all good things, right? And they're all reflective of what following Jesus might look like. But by themselves, we end up with cakes that look a mess, right? Because it takes time to become a baker. Right? You can't just have these steps. It takes time to become a follower of Jesus. So what I think that we need to shift is our understanding of what it looks like, not just to act like a Christian, but to be a follower of Jesus. And it does require our whole being. Like salvation is free, right? If we want to follow Jesus, if we need his salvation to rescue us, all we have to do is ask, and that is given to us instantly, and that is free. But sometimes I think that we understand the message of salvation, and we can be saved, but miss what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, right? That requires our whole being, and it is a learning process. And the way of Jesus that we're talking about this summer is so much harder to teach than a five-step process, right? Like, that's why we do it so much. There's lots of people that make a lot of money trying to boil the Christian life down to follow five steps to knowing the Lord, right? Like, those things can be tools that point us in the right direction, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Often what it takes for us to learn to live the difference between acting like a Christian and being a disciple, follower of Jesus, is coming to the end of ourselves, right? Like getting to a place where we look around and we're like, this is not what I thought it would be. I can't do this on my own. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, if you're still not even sure what that means, that is okay because we're all asking this question even if we have said yes to Jesus. What does it look like to follow Jesus with my life. And this is exactly where we find the disciples in John 13. This big question, I've come to the end of myself. This doesn't look like I thought it would. What do I do now, Jesus? We're going to pick up in John 13 here soon. Like Corey said last week, they're celebrating Passover. They're in a room and there's been a week of festivities and Eating, and it's, the, it's a remembrance of the time when God rescued the Jewish people from slavery, but it's also a celebration of that. So there's this tone of celebration and joy. Also, just a few days earlier, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem 
to a parade, right? The city, the capital city of Israel. He's entered into it and they welcomed him with joy and shouting, right? And so there's this tone that things are on the up and up. And the people who are with Jesus following him, the disciples, they expect this to go a certain way. They're expecting to be part of something bigger than themselves. The Jewish people at this time had been expecting a Messiah. They'd been expecting a Messiah for hundreds of years. There are Old Testament prophets who tell us over and over again, they're speaking to their people who have been oppressed, who have been part of war and exile and unimaginable loss. They're telling them, hey, God hasn't forgotten you, right? Like, someone is coming, hold on, hold on. Someone is coming to rescue you. And so they've been waiting. And there are people that believe Jesus is that Messiah, that rescuer. But they have a really here and now, kind of like worldly understanding of what that's going to look like, of what that rescuer is going to do. They're pretty sure that that rescuer is going to save them from a worldly oppressive government. They're pretty sure that they're going to see God put a human king on a human throne in their lifetime. They're pretty sure they're going to be part of this upheaval of the current system, which in the time of Jesus was the Roman government so that they could have, for the first time in hundreds of years, something they hadn't had, their own land, their own laws of faith that they could follow, their own king, their own kingdom. They're pretty sure that this is going to happen and that Jesus is going to usher it in. The time is coming, and it's here, and they have this expectant anticipation and hope. And I want you to sit in that feeling right now. Like I want you to picture a time when you've had this same kind of anticipation or expectant hope. Like maybe it was like a first date that went really well and you're like, maybe this is it, right? Or maybe it's a job interview that you like rocked and this is, I'm gonna have this job, right? Maybe it is news you've heard from a doctor, you thought that there was a sickness and instead there's good news. Like it, it might not be as bad as you thought it was gonna be. There's this expectant hope and that's where the disciples are. And then we pick up in John 13, 21. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. That's a buzzkill, right? Betrayal? One of us at this table? One of our own, someone that we've traveled with and ate with and laughed with about whatever dudes laugh about. And we've seen him, you know, fall asleep with his mouth hanging open and during another one of Jesus' long sermons. And we've seen him sleep and awake and we've lived together. This group of people had been together for three years traveling. They were more like family than anything else. And we, we think about how Judas betrayed Jesus often. But he also betrayed this whole group of friends. And so this is a massive shift in the tone of this story. And I love this next scene, y'all. I love this. I've read this passage hundreds of times probably, and I've never noticed the nuance of what happens next. We'll pick up in verse 22. 
The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. This is such a human, relatable moment. The one who Jesus, whom Jesus loved, that disciple that is right next to Jesus, that's actually our author, John. And I love that he calls himself this, you guys. He doesn't use his own name. He doesn't use a first-person pronoun. He calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. That is his whole identity. I love that so much. And he is at Jesus' right side. That means that he is the, in the place of honor at this meal. He's Jesus' closest friend here. And from across the room, Peter, who's in the inner circle of Jesus as well, one of the, the closest disciples, he like motions to John. He's like, hey, you know, trying to get his attention. Hey, hey, ask him. Find out, like, like find out who it is. Right? You're right next to him. When John doesn't hesitate, he doesn't hesitate because he knows, he knows that he can ask Jesus these kinds of questions because he trusts him. So he leans his head back, and I love this picture. It would have been touching Jesus' chest close enough to ask a question that only Jesus can hear. This close connection is this just natural, simple reflection of the kind of relationship John had with Jesus that is close and trusting, and it's the kind of relationship I want to have with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't tell him to mind his own business, right? He doesn't tell him to wait and see. He answers openly and honestly, the one I hand this bread to, which is the thing I always assumed he said to the whole group, but he doesn't say it to the whole group. He just says it to John because John asked, and John was close enough to hear the answer. What does the way of Jesus look like? I think this is one element following Jesus so closely that we know we can ask him the kinds of hard questions that we deal with on a regular basis and then staying close enough to him to hear his response to us. But can you imagine the confusion for John here? Like This is someone he trusted that Jesus is pointing out. The letdown, the crash from this place of expectant hope to utter devastation at the betrayal of someone you thought you knew so well. Let's pick up again in John 13, 33. This is Jesus talking. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? 
This isn't the first time Jesus had said that he was going away, but I think it's the first time the disciples actually listened to him, right? Like, that should sound familiar from your own life, right? Like, Jesus is saying something, and sometimes it takes us a while to listen and respond, but they're in danger now, right? Like, they recognize that one of their own is not trustworthy, that there's betrayal at hand, and so now they're paying attention. And I don't quite understand. Like, you're leaving now? But someone's supposed to betray us, and, and, and you're supposed to be king. You're leaving, you're leaving now. And then Peter speaks. Peter, the one who motioned to John earlier. Hey, ask him, right? Peter, who is passionate. The one with all the promises to Jesus and the grand ideas and the foot in his mouth often. Lord, where are you going? He doesn't even pay attention to the fact that Jesus has just given them this like bomb of truth. Love one another as I have loved you. Doesn't even listen to that, right? Where are you going? This starts this exchange between Peter and Jesus, starts a set of three parallel exchanges in which a disciple asks a question and Jesus answers that question. In the Greek, which I did Greek this semester, y'all, and so now I like it nerdy about it. The original language is Greek, and it like jumps out at you, the parallelism here, because you can see the exact same words are used to start every exchange, and the exact same words are used with Jesus' response. It's heightening the tension, that repetition, that back and forth is, is increasing the drama of the story. The disciples are freaking out and they're starting to fall like dominoes here. The translation is literally, Simon Peter is saying to him, Lord. It's in present tense, again, to increase the tension and the drama. It's happening And the response from Jesus is literally, Jesus is saying to him. I've never noticed before that this is happening in front of a group, but Jesus is responding directly to the person who asks the question. It's another one of those reflections of the kind of relationship each one of these people had with Jesus. They could ask him hard questions, and he saw their fear. And he saw their confusion and he spoke right to it and he does it over and over and over again here. Let's see how Jesus responds in the second half of verse 33. He says, sorry, 36. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Anyone notice that Jesus does not directly answer Peter's question? That frustrates me, right? Like, I, I hope you understand. Like, I, you felt that, right? Like, Lord, tell me what to do here. And he tells you something else and doesn't answer your question. He does that here. And Peter, unlike the next two disciples, gets another question in because that's how he is. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And in the context of what he understands to be going on in that moment, I think he really means that. He doesn't know Jesus is talking about his own death here yet. He likely thinks Jesus is trying to protect Peter and the rest of the disciples from some sort of dangerous mission that will lead to Jesus being 
an earthly king. If my life is in danger for you to become king, I'm not afraid to die, Jesus. I think it's only when Jesus is arrested and convicted and nailed to a cross that Peter is thrown for a loop. I was ready to die if it meant victory, but this looks an awful lot like defeat. Why would I die for that defeat? Peter wants victory. He wants to be part of something bigger than himself, part of something great. And he thought that following Jesus would mean victory for himself and for his people in the way that he understood that to mean. He doesn't want to get left behind. He wants to be part of something bigger than himself. What do we do when following Jesus doesn't look anything like we thought it would? pick up again in 14 verse 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house there are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am going, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? This is our second set in these three parallel interactions. Again, it literally starts with Thomas is saying to him, Lord, he's confused. (laughs) Peter just asked where you're going and you didn't answer him. But now you say you've got some mysterious place for us to go to and that we know the way there, but you've not told us where you're going. So how can we know the way there? And y'all, he's not wrong. That is confusing. This is the same Thomas that gets a bad rap throughout Christian history for being doubting Thomas. After Jesus dies and is resurrected, he's the one that doesn't believe the other disciples when they say that Jesus has come back. He's the one that refuses to believe until he puts his hands on the scars of Jesus' body, which he gets to do, and then he believes that he's back. It's fascinating to think that this question is probably the last thing Thomas said to Jesus before he touched the scars on his resurrected body. Thomas wants certainty. He wants a map. He likes concrete knowledge. He doesn't like to be surprised. He's a rational thinker who has reasons for why he believes what he believes, well-thought-out reasons. He's probably a bit of a philosopher in the Greek world that produced Plato and Socrates. What do we do when following Jesus doesn't look anything like we thought it would? Jesus gives him a direct response, but probably not one he was happy with because it's not rational. (laughs) This is what Jesus says to him in John 14, 6, and this is the passage that has inspired our whole series this summer. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, I always picture Jesus saying this to the whole crowd, And they're listening, but he's saying it directly to Thomas. This is a specific response to a specific person with a specific need because Jesus knows just what he needs to hear. And it's also something that changes everything for the rest of us. The word for way here in Greek is used in most other places as road. It's translated as road. 
this is going to be a journey. You can also translate it, I am the road or the path toward God. This is going to be a journey, and I am the path you take to get to God. I'm also truth, which has the sense here of righteousness and holiness. I am the thing you need to take on in order to be in the presence of God. I'm your traveling clothes. Put on my truth as you travel, embody it, learn to move and walk and live in it comfortably. And I am the life. In John 1, it talks about Jesus as life in terms of light. When everything around you feels like death and destruction and confusion. When the path is dark and you can't see what's in front of you to know if you're even still on the path. When your sure death is on the horizon. I will be the light of life that guides you through the valley of the shadow of darkness. I am everything you need for this journey toward the Father. And I will bring you to him. And then there's Philip. John 14, 8. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. We don't know much about Philip from the Gospels. He speaks a few times in John, but otherwise, he's not very visible. What we do know about Philip is that when he meets Jesus, when he hears Jesus talk, he knows he's the Messiah. He is so sure that Jesus is the Messiah, the one talked about in the Old Testament and in the prophets, that he brings his friend Nathaniel to meet Jesus. And Nathaniel believes and becomes a disciple as well. Here's the thing about Philip. His question, the thing that he states to Jesus is, I show us the Father, like reveal the glory of the Father to us now. Right? He, this is a really holy, like righteous desire. He wants to know what God is like, and he wants to see that glory revealed on earth now. He's been in it for the beginning for that very reason. If Jesus leaves now, they've not yet seen the Father. So all this good that I've done for the last three years with you, Jesus, it's all for nothing, right? What happens when following Jesus doesn't look anything like we thought it would? Jesus responds in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. I don't read this as condemnation. I read this as the heart of Jesus crying out to the heart of Philip in this moment. How have you missed it, Philip? It reminds me of when Jesus talks to Martha and he says, hey, you have been worried and distracted doing some really good things, but you've missed the most important thing. Philip is so focused on what he thinks God is supposed to be like that he misses who Jesus actually is right in front of him. How often do we get distracted by the doing of the good things to make God happy that we miss the presence of Jesus in our lives right now? Do you want to know something beautiful about each one of these interactions that we see? 
and the different ways that each of his friends need to hear it, Jesus answers their questions by offering himself. Where am I going? You can't go yet, but when you do get to where I am, I will be your home. I will come again to get you and take you to myself so that where I am, you will be also. How do you get there? Through me. I am the road you take on the journey to get there. It will be my strength and my truth and the light of my life that will lead you home. You want me to reveal the Father to you? I already have. The Father looks like me and sounds like me and acts like me and loves like me and gives grace and mercy and truth like me because I and the Father are one. And he offers himself to you too. He hears your questions and your pain and your confusion. He understands and he listens. And he's patient to offer himself to you when following him looks nothing like you thought it would. We're not promised that the way will be easy. I'm not sure where we got that lie stuck in our head that following Jesus is going to mean everything is grand and easy and fantastic and exactly what I want it to be because from the mouth of Jesus himself, we are actually promised the opposite. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but... Take heart, I have overcome the world. We won't know what's around the next bend on the journey. We can't know. We don't know what the weather will be tomorrow, tomorrow what terrain we'll walk through, what injuries will happen along the way. But we are promised the presence of Jesus with us, around us, welcoming us to him with open arms. Yesterday was our anniversary, my husband and mine. Thank you. 14 years, y'all. 14 years we've been married for. Thank you. So, you know, we wanted to celebrate because that's what you do. And we had this picture of what that celebration would look like. We also have two children who we thought would want to celebrate with us since their existence depends on our marriage. <laughs> we were wrong. Like, you want to come to dinner with us, right? Yeah, let's go. This will be really fun. This will be really fun. So there's this little shop in Andrew that I wanted to go to. So we went there, and then we went to Vicious Fishes in Fuquay. And we waited 25 minutes for our table, which I had requested that it be an outside table because I like to be outside, and it's my anniversary. But my 12-year-old refuses to wear anything but a sweatshirt, ever. And he does not want to go outside. And he sits down at an inside table and refuses to move. And he's got this attitude, and I am having none of that attitude on my anniversary. So I responded in a very mature way by walking out of the restaurant and not coming back in. I am not going to deal with that today, son of mine whom I love. And I sit by our car, and they all come out with these, like, drawn faces, and everyone's just, like, defeated. And we get in the car, and we drive home, and it's 7.15, and we have no idea what's for dinner, which at our house is not ever a good idea. Hangry runs in the family. And then we, I mean, another 30, 45 minutes of just chaos, right? Like, everyone's mad at everyone else. Corbin's phone gets taken away. I'm angry. And we're all just like sitting outside at some point, 
just like sitting there, not sure what to do. And Corbin's trying to explain to me like what happened, like why he got upset. And I'm trying to explain to him like, hey, I'm not gonna deal with your attitude on my anniversary. And then he says, but like, can we just talk about it? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and honestly, I did not want to. I wanted to like throw a fit and go upstairs and lay down and not get out of bed. And then Jesus very quietly whispers to me, hey, like, like follow, follow my way here. And so I said, okay, we can talk about it. And what that meant was that I had to apologize because I grossly overreacted, y'all. I had to say, I am sorry. Like, I was frustrated by your attitude, but I overreacted, and I'm really sorry for that. And he kind of huffs and walks up onto the porch and sits there for another probably five minutes. And then I hear from the little couch we have on our porch, I'm sorry. And at our house, we follow up with, what are you, what are you sorry for? And he said, I'm sorry for being difficult. And then my daughter, who's nine years old, says, isn't this what we love about Jesus? That he can take something bad and make it good? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And Corbin said, well, I'll make dessert for you. It's your anniversary. How can I serve you, says my 12-year-old son in this moment. And then he said, what did you guys have at dinner for your wedding? We have barbecue. Well, why don't we go get barbecue? So we went and got barbecue takeout, and our kids made us chocolate chip cookies. And we got to start over. We got to do a redo. We got to experience the power of the gospel, which is, I just royally screwed that up, right? This is not at all what I thought this was going to look like. I did not expect my anniversary to turn out this way. But Jesus in us, Jesus in our kids, y'all, like shifted things and pointed us in a different direction, in a different way, and invited us to redemption, to a do-over, to see the strength and the power of what it looks like to follow Jesus on the way in an everyday moment in our everyday life. What happens when following Jesus is nothing like what we thought it would be. Jesus offers himself so we can have strength for the journey, so that we can be transformed along the way, so that we know that we're never alone. And my challenge for you tonight is to look for it. Look for the invitation of Jesus that says, come follow me here. And see how the gospel can come alive in your everyday life and say yes. Like say yes when Jesus invites you to come and see, to come and follow and let him transform you and then do it again and again and again and again. One step in front of the other as you follow Jesus as a disciple on the way. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you that we are not alone. I thank you that when we come to the end of ourselves, when we can't see right from left or up from down, when we don't know where to go, 
when we try so hard to do it on our own and find out that we can't, that your gospel, the truth, that you come where we are weak and you show up where we can't and you step in and you transform things in just everyday lives in simple everyday ways. And I pray for myself, I pray for each and every one of the people in this room tonight that we would say yes. Whether that's saying yes to following you for the first time or whether we're doing it for the thousandth time or whether we've forgotten how to do it and need to remember again that you would invite us and that we would have the courage to say yes. Amen.